Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Attorney Jennifer Abeli has a background in business, tax, and the law. She started her career as a certified public accountant with Ernest & Young and continued practicing as a CPA at two worldwide investment banks. In her legal career, she's worked at both large and boutique law firms practicing in trust and estates and nonprofits. And she's the founder of Jennifer V. Abeli Law Firm in New York, New York. Her law firm's practice is focused on estate planning and nonprofit law, and we're super, super excited to have her here today on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Davina. Thank you for having me. It's so good to finally meet you and um, talk about your practice and how you've grown and some of the journey that you've taken. You have such an interesting background being a certified public accountant. And did you become a certified public accountant and an attorney kind of at the same time or did one before the other? How did that work for you? Uh, good question. So I became a CPA first. Uh, law school came a few years later. I never wanted to be a lawyer. Uh-huh. Uh, I did not like the law classes I took when I was in, in college. Um, for you to, at the time, you know, when, when you want to sit for the CPA exam, it's a very regimented course. I think it's still that way. And you have uh-huh. to take two law classes. And it uh-huh. just was not my, my cup of tea. So I didn't like it. Um, but one of the parts of the CPA exam is law. And I just barely failed my first time to get conditioned on the CPA because I missed the law section by two points. Oh, and wow. I said, well, let me take it. Ag-. Yeah, I said, let me take it again. And let me kind of try to change my approach to the law section and pretend like I love it. Um, and that's what I did. And my I increased my points by like 15. So I did really well. But what it Yay. did is that it kind of triggered an interest in me. Yeah, to, to do the law. And when I told, you know, some of my, my friends and colleagues at the time that I was thinking of law school, they said, oh, everyone who takes the CPA says that after, you know, do it, doing the law section. Um, but it was a, a bug that kind of bit me. And, and five or six years later, I actually ended up in law school because <laughs> it, it just, I, I wouldn't let it go. I just wanted wow. to learn more. So, wow. uh, yeah, so it was not, I did not dream of being a lawyer ever. It did not interest me, but it, you know, kind of, I kind of caught the bug accidentally. And so I, I found myself in, in law school deliberately giving up a career that I was doing really well in. And it was, it was just a huge risk for me to make that, that change right. at the time. Right. So, yeah. so give me a little bit of, uh, I mean, that, that is a really unusual story. Um, you know, we often hear people say, oh, well, I, I thought about doing it. And, and then sometimes people are, you know, well, I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer till later on, but it's really interesting how your journey to coming to that decision. What is it that, first of all, I love the idea that I'm going to pretend like I love this <laughs> and then I'm going to approach it from that <laughs> angle. Uh, that shows the power of the mind, you know, in our success. Yeah. And what is it that you then fell in love with? What aspect of it was appealing to you? You know, I think the thought process that goes into 
the law in applying it, right? So when you take the CPA exam, it's pretty much restricted to business law, corporate law. You don't see the, the vast array of law topics that you see in law school or in, in the world. Um, right. But I realized it was a slightly different way of thinking, and I really enjoyed how that worked, seeing that there was a problem or there was a challenge and that there were kind of these rules in place or decisions in place that said how that should be resolved. So we learned it a little bit more academically when you study for the CPA exam. You know, they, they kind of give you very definite answers, you know, like, oh, right. this is, you know, if you do this, it's three years. If you do that, there, there isn't too much room for getting creative with applying the law. But I did see that it was a different way of thinking than, than it right. is to be an accountant and to be a CPA. Yeah. Yeah, very. I can see that's very, very different in, in that. But I imagine that accounting background and being a CPA has helped you so much in your legal career uh, in trusts and estates and working with nonprofits. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, so much. It's unbelievable. And, you know, when I was an accountant, I did not want to do taxes. So I have all these kind of stories I'm realizing where I, I don't want to do certain things. And then I, I find myself doing them and doing them really well. Um, so I didn't want to do tax. And uh, I actually went to get my credentials as a CPA in the audit section. Um, so I wasn't really exposed to tax too much. And when I went to law school, I was like, I don't want to do tax law. I wanted to do real estate. But then a, a professor at, at the law school said, well, this is what real estate attorneys do. You know, they go to these board meetings, community meetings, and they get yelled at. And then they have to do negotiations and they go at APM. And I was like, that sounds terrible. Um, so that's not what I ended up doing. Uh, but what I find is that my CPA background has really paved the path for me to understand the tax law from both sides. So, and trust and estates, I work with a lot of high net worth clients. So tax planning and tax decisions are integral to working with these clients, both during planning phase and then post-mortem phase. And I had to learn the law. And I had this professor in law school and I said to him, you know, I don't know if I want to take the tax class. And he said, I really suggest you take it because law as an attorney is different. I'm sorry, tax as an attorney is different than tax as an accountant. And he was totally right. It was very different. So I found what that are the differences? I what would you say the differences well. are? So the difference, yeah. So I say the difference when it comes to what tax is like as a CPA versus as a lawyer is that the CPA understands what the particular tax law will do to the client's actual numbers. That's what clients want to know, right? They want to mm -hmm. see. Well, what does this mean? If, if we do this, what does it mean? What the attorney does is the attorney says, these are the things we can do, and this is how we can do them, and this is what we think the law will, will provide if we do this. What will that mean for your numbers? We need to work with, with the accountant because they're the ones that see what does it mean for this, this particular client. So I work very closely with accountants because we're kind of two 
rails on the train track, right? Mm -hmm. One side is is the attorney, one side is the accountant, and the train is kind of the client, right, or the matter that we have to deal with. And we need each other in order to keep the client on, on the right path, right? Because for me, it's more theoretical, whereas for the accountant, it's more pragmatic. You know, what, what does this really mean? And so an example I give is, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, can, can we convert something from like an S-corp to an LLC or something like that? And I'll say, well, yes, there are some issues. And I say, well, one of the things you have to think about is, you know, do you have depreciation that has to be recaptured? They're like, well, I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. And the accountant is the only one that can answer that, right? So my point is, for one client, the answer might be you're going to have a minimal tax impact. And for another client, it might be you're going to have a huge tax impact. But I can tell them what the law is, but at the end of the day, only the accountant can say what this will actually mean if we implement this. They run the numbers. They, they do the pro forma accounts. And now we see if we need to change gears. Right, right, right. I, that makes perfect sense. You are fluent in multiple languages. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. What do you, what languages do you speak and why, uh, how, how, what was your path to learning multiple languages? Okay, great. Uh, so I'm a first generation American. My parents are both immigrants. Uh, my dad was a refugee and from Eastern Europe. Um, and my mom, she came here from Colombia. So they met and here we are. And so I spoke, you know, I speak Spanish fluently. I speak Slovak conversationally. So that's kind of my, my origination life. And, and my husband is French. So I've learned French to speak with my family in, in France. So that's how I speak different languages. And you are able to, so this is a real added benefit for your clients because you're able to work with clients of many different you know, ethnicities, nationalities, and able to serve them, right? Absolutely. Especially when it comes to um, Spanish-speaking clients, they, you know, they tend to have an, an immigration client, things, clients who are immigrants or clients who kind of have an international footprint. Um, I'm able to kind of bridge that gap when it comes to understanding certain lingo, understanding the culture to a certain extent, because I'm very sensitive to the way different cultures approach estate planning, estate taxation, accumulation of wealth, because I, I was in that world. I grew up in that world, right? Uh, you know, I understand what it is to be a child of an immigrant. And I, I see now that I'm older, like what the immigrant's mentality is, you know, depending on how they, they got here. It's kind of like by your bootstraps, you work really hard, you try to do really well, and hopefully you do well for, for your, your family and, and the next generation. Um, and so a lot of clients, especially, you know, the immigrant community, they can be very cautious with who they work with. And being able to communicate with them in their native language is so important for them to gain trust with their advisor. Uh, I tend to see that that's, that's a huge factor in, in working with clients. And, um, you know, whether we're doing advanced tax planning or something more basic, having the ability to speak in their native language is critical. Right, right. I can see, I can see that would be huge. And 
um, really kind of t when you you're sort of touching on the differences between uh, Americans, you know, people who have a born and raised here and don't have that may not have as strong of a cultural or international footprint as you as you put it. I can see the differences and why that would be so important to be have an understanding of how cultural dynamics fit into people's money stories, right? Like what their beliefs are Absolutely. around money and estates and, and that kind of thing, right? What are some of the differences you think you've noticed? You mentioned a couple. Yeah, so I'd say the biggest one I noticed is that clients who built their own wealth tend to be cautious when it comes to sharing information about mm -hmm. it because they just don't want anyone to have too much information about them. Uh, so they tend to be distrustful and they want to know that whoever it is that they're speaking with understands what it took for them to get to where they are and understands how much they want to protect what they've created. And I think a lot of us, you know, that kind of comes across a lot of people want to protect what they've created, but I find that especially to be the case when it comes to immigrant families who have created wealth for themselves, kind of trying to do it on their own because they, they don't really trust anyone else. So that, I, that's the biggest one that I see. Um, I, another one that I see is that they kind of wait a little bit longer before they get someone else involved to help them. So, um, you know, I, I kind of try to come in, but by the time I come in, you know, I'm like, we could have done this, we could have done that. But something else I find is that they're actually much more open to creative solutions, I think, because in a way they haven't been indoctrinated to you just do a will and you pass it. They're much more open-minded when they do start listening to what, what we're discussing and asking questions about all the different ways that we can retitle assets, try to save taxes. Uh, they're not as reluctant to keep the assets in their own name. They're more willing to, to understand the bigger impact of the type of planning I'm trying to do for them. Oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your law firm business. You know, a lot of the women, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are other women law firm owners. And so I always like to delve into a, a little bit about your law firm and when, what year did you start your firm? Because you worked at, did you work, you worked for other law firms first, correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so what year did That's you start right. your law firm? So I actually just started my law firm earlier this year. Oh, yay. It well, congratulations. The, yeah. Thank you. So it was in the planning for uh, 15 years since I've been in law school. But it just, it kind of took a while to get here. And I always knew I wanted to have my own practice. But I, I guess I say, you know, life kind of takes charge in a way. And I ended up getting great opportunities to really learn um, my area of passion, which is trust in estates and not-for-profits. And mm -hmm. so I, I took them. I figured, you know, this will just help me refine my skills. It'll help me learn to be a lawyer. And then at one point, as I was getting more senior a little bit, I think, you know, quote unquote senior, I, I wanted to start learning how to build my practice. So I tried to situate myself so that 
I can do that and learn how to build a practice, kind of learn the business a little bit. And now I made the decision to do it. You know, the past year kind of helped that along, just seeing how I was able to switch to all remote, switch to paperless. You know, the goal of the firm is to be paperless. And a huge factor was to see how well my clients adjusted to technology. Uh, because my clients are the biggest factor when it comes to making this kind of decision and, and how I set up the firm. And I wanted to make sure that my clients would be able to come along on the technology road that, that I'm trying to create. And so right. they adapted so well to it. Um, you know, we were kind of forced to do it, right? But it showed me that we're all really resilient in a certain way, despite all the terrible, you know, things that happened in the past year. And I said, you know, I think that this is a, a good time to do it. I've been able to figure out what it's like to work remotely. My clients have adjusted really well to, to meeting remotely, doing remote signings and remote notarizations. So that was a big catalyst that made me do it at this point. Right, right. So you were the last firm you were working with, what kind of was the, did you have an aha moment that I really need to open my own firm? Or, you know, was there something that caused that, caused you to go down that road? Or what made you decide that that's what you wanted to do? You know, that's a good question. I think it was a combination of things. There wasn't, there wasn't an event. Um, there wasn't something. It was just kind of, an accumulation. And I'll say that because I actually started thinking about it the year before. So I started thinking about really taking steps in 2019. So it took me kind of a year of planning <laughs> to get to where, where I actually went off on my own. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't planned in like a week. It, it took planning. I did a lot of research. I spoke to a lot of other solo women, you know, what their path is like, what I should think about, you know, I'm also a member of the New York Women's Bar Association and the Solo and Small Practice Committee, which is amazing. They are so supportive. Um, they gave me so much advice. And, and I looked into, you know, what are the costs going to be? How much do I need to have? Because I wanted to build a business, right? So I want to make sure that the business can, can not just sustain itself, but it can sustain me. And so that's why it took a little bit of planning to get to to where I took the leap and, and went off on my own uh, was the planning, not just, you know, financially, but, but logistics and website and, and rates, uh, what kind of clients, things like that. Right, right. So how's it been going so far? It's going well. Um, you know, I'm still learning a lot about being a business owner. Uh, I'd say the the one thing that I was surprised about as much as I tried to plan for it was all the administrative work that goes into being a solo practitioner. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I have listened to one of your podcasts, you know, and, and that is a topic that comes up, you know, knowing how to and when to, to delegate, when to ask for help. And, you know, in what I do with trust and estate, I actually can't really be completely solo, right? Because I need to have a second witness if we're if we're if I'm going to supervise execution of estate planning documents right. I need to have a notary so I do need a team and and it's just a little bit 
of a change thinking that, well, I'm going to be solo. I'm going to do it on my own. But, you know, you can do almost anything you want, but you almost always need someone to help you, right? So I think right. that's something I'm learning along the process is embracing that I can actually lean on other people. And in a way, I have to, right? We're, right. you know, I'm not an island, right? It's kind of a village. I need a village. And that's been more interesting. Yeah. Right, right. I also would say, you you know, we tend to think that it's, as attorneys, we're intelligent people, we're educated people. And so most things we feel like we can figure out if we just have enough time to figure it out. But the truth of the matter is, is that really there is a highest and best use of our time. There's something that where the value of our time is and other things we're we're probably not the best person to do. You know, like, uh, for instance, when people are, you know, attorneys are trying to promote themselves on social media, it may be that they don't, they're not graphic designers and yet they're spending time at night, you know, putting together memes to go out on their social media. And it's like, okay, how much money can I be making in that hour? Or what else could I be doing? Like resting, you know, if I hire somebody who's a graphic designer, then I'm not spending time. There's a whole lot of different aspects of running and growing your law firm where it just makes sense to have other people help you out with it. And what's so wonderful about the world we're living in today is that there are so many remote vendors, you know, virtual assistants who can help you with a lot of those things, even virtual paralegals and other contract attorneys. And so you can build a team without having an office, you know, if you want to like the traditional law firm. So it's an exciting time, you know, to be growing a law firm, don't you think? Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. It's, it's just like you said, you know, kind of taking a step back and, and seeing where am I kind of spinning my wheels and mm -hmm. what do I feel like I'm wasting time on? Something that actually has to get done, but maybe it's just not time well spent for me. Right. Um, and I feel like it's, a, it's just a growing process a little bit just because I am kind of a but behind the ears on, on being a business owner and having my own practice, I'm finding that working with the clients and doing the legal work is easier than, than uh, the administrative stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I learn as I go. I ask for a lot of advice and, uh, right, you know, right. I am looking to, you know, build my team, you know, as far as, as I can so that I do have the support I need when I do have a client signing or if I need someone to, help me prepare certain documents that are standard for a not-for-profit. I, yeah. I can kind of give that to someone else and I can say, this is kind of what you do, as long as it's something that isn't, you know, too confidential for the clients that have information, that's something that they can take off my plate and I can spend my time more wisely in a way. Right. You know, I, my goal is to work smart, not hard in, in a sense. You know, I feel like I do work hard, but I want to work smart. You know, I don't want to just work, work, work. And then it's like, well, where, where did this really get me? Right. Um, right. It might not all be something that's bringing money back to me. Right. Right. Tell me this. What is your, what was your interest in picking nonprofits as one of your practice areas? That's a good question. It wasn't an interest of mine. I uh, I didn't know that area of law existed. This was this was about maybe eight or nine nine years ago. Um, I was at at a you know another firm where I was a more junior associate in the trust and estates group. And if you know anything about trust and estates, 
you know, that if you're at a big firm, it usually does not bill the high numbers that litigation does. So I was always the one that kind of had a little extra time on my hands. And there was a new not-for-profit corporation law in New York that was passed. It was a completely new new law. So they needed someone to learn it. And because there is a bit of crossover between philanthropic planning and charitable planning in the, in the states, and I had time, they said, well, and there was also a lot of tax tax information involved. They kind of tasked me with with learning that particular law, the new law, and summarizing it, kind of sharing the information with the attorneys in the firm who have these clients. And that's what I did. I, I learned the law. I, I summarized it. I made I made charts and I made paragraphs and descriptions. And what ended up happening was. At that point, I was the expert in the firm, right? Because no right. one else delved into it as much as I did. So I, I started working with the attorneys who do had, you know, had a few not-for-profit clients. So I was working on the not-for-profit matters. And slowly but surely, it turned out that I really enjoyed working on it. I think a big factor also was that I, I had good attorneys I was working with, and they challenged me in a great way. So they were very supportive. It was a team environment, but they challenged me and they let me loose a little bit where they said, go try this and see what you come up with, right? And then if if I presented it to them, they might ask me follow-up questions. So they taught me how to think in a way like a lawyer, right? That you want to do when you're in law school, but in practice, it's very different. So when I went to the next firm that I was at, they had a huge number of not-for-profit clients. And the partner I was working with, he also had not-for-profit experience. But there wasn't really anyone else at the firm that was a dedicated not-for-profit attorney. And over the years, I really learned all the different areas of not-for-profit law because I was delved into it. And I embraced it because I loved doing it. So that's how I got to not-for-profit. It, it was interesting because when they, they initially gave me that project many years ago, I was like, a not-for-profit? What is that? You know, they don't teach you this. In my law school, I did, this wasn't a class for me to take. Um, but it turned out that I loved working on it. So now that, that's a significant part of my practice, working with not-for-profits at every stage of their life cycle from, from beginning to growth to challenges, to the end of their life cycle, whatever that might be, whether it's a merger or a dissolution. Right, right. I would imagine since you like to, you know, work with high net worth clients, that foundations and philanthropic organizations and are a big part of their estate planning or a big part of their financial planning and something that has to be dealt with in estates. Do you find that you're working with those or or you tend to be working with more sort of grassroots nonprofits? Yeah, so it depends. I'd say if a client is philanthropic to begin with, they're philanthropic. I've, I've found it challenging con- to convince a client who's not philanthropic to decide to, you know, get, give a part of their estate to, to a charitable purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I, but you're right, because I know both areas separately so well, I'm able to bridge the gap. When I do have a client who is philanthropic, and they might come to me and say, I want to create a private foundation. And I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about that. You know, what what are you trying to get out of this? Is this going to be an ongoing family foundation or is this going to be for a limited time? 
Where is the funding coming from? How involved do you want to be? Do you want to make the decisions on, on who gets the, the charitable amounts? Do you want to file tax returns every year? So I hear what, what they have to say to me, you know, how involved do they want to be or not involved? And I say, well, maybe a private foundation is not for you. Maybe there's another tool, maybe a charitable trust, or maybe a donor advised fund. And it, it works the other way too, or maybe someone says a donor advised fund. I'm like, well, this is what it means. Is that what you would like to get out of the donor advised fund or do you want to be more involved? And so someone said, well, we want to be involved. We want to, you know, pass this to the family. We want to have a board. We want to, you know, make these decisions. Uh, well, maybe a private foundation is better for you. So it depends if the client is philanthropically inclined, then I'm able to kind of bridge that gap for them. And sometimes I have a client who wants to set up a separate not-for-profit. You know, so when I say not-for-profits, it's not just public charities or private foundations. I work with civic organizations, I work with supporting organizations, I work with membership organizations, I work with organizations that just hold real estate, organizations that are set up to work with a PAC, organizations that are, are set up for lobbying purposes. So I work with a whole umbrella of not-for-profit organizations um, and kind of anything that comes along in their life cycle. I, I work as fractional general counsel for some clients where I work with them regularly throughout the year on an as-needed basis. With some, I work on a per-project. Maybe it's just setting up their organization initially, and then we're, we're kind of done unless they need something. Or maybe I, it's governance purposes. I work with a lot of nonprofits who have governance issues, so their bylaws need to be revised. I figure out what the challenges are, get that cleaned up for them. Is there a conflict of interest? Is there a potential transaction that the IRS is going to look into that's going to create an excise tax. So these are the kinds of things I work with not-for-profits on when they come to me. So what do you think the challenges have been in starting your law firm in 2021 after this kind of year of shutdown, especially in New York City? I mean, we're noticed, you know, New York City has really changed a lot because of the pandemic and, and the need to really shut everything down to protect people. How has that affected your ability to sort of market your practice? Yeah, so I get a lot of my clients from referrals. So I, I try to be out there a little bit more with Instagram, with Facebook, which I can't even figure out how to use, honestly, um, Twitter. <laughs> so I try to be active in other ways. But for me, because a lot of my referrals come from my network, it's been a little bit harder to stay top of mind in a way, right? And mm -hmm. I say it's both ways, like not just me on their top of mind, but, you know, them on, on the top of my mind. Um, so now that things are opening up, I'm trying to deliberately, and that I'm vaccinated, and you know, the people I'm meeting with are vaccinated, to start meeting in person more because, you know, the Zoom is, is fine, it works, but I think meeting in person is kind of what can solidify a professional relationship if you want to start delving into who might be a good referral source. So it's, it's been tough to do all the, the phone calls and the, you know, the Zooming and things like that. On the flip side, because I've, I've had the ability to do all the Zooms and the phone calls, 
I was able to meet a lot more people, but it kind of made me realize I want to focus my efforts a little bit more in, in a specific way to clients that we can be beneficial for each other and, and referrals we can be beneficial for each other, um, but also to, to kind of broaden my, my marketing a little bit. Right, right. So what is your vision for your law firm? Where do you anticipate that you want to be in three years from now? What, what, would, what would that look like for you? That's a great question. You know, I, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't, I don't have an answer. Um, I kind of wanted to run my own show on my own, by my own, but now I'm starting to realize that I'd probably do better with the team. And I think my clients would probably do better if, if I had a team. So it's possible that I may say I would like to have enough counsel that I work with that is in a practice area that complements my practice, one of my practice areas. Mm-hmm. And I think that is probably the most identifiable place I would like to be in three years is to not necessarily expand my, my solo practice, but to say that I, I do have other resources that I work with regularly so that if something comes up that is kind of in the wheelhouse of what I do, I don't have to refer it out necessarily. I can, I can say we can help you with that. Right, right. Well, it's been so fun to talk with you today and I'm super excited for you about your new law firm because that's a, that's a big step and I've done it and I know how exciting it is. So I'm really glad that you've, that you've done that. And it sounds like things are going really well for you. Tell us how we can connect with you in social media or if, not Facebook, I guess, <laughs> or find you or find you on the internet. Okay, great. Thanks. So uh, you can find me on my website, abelilaw.com. That's A-B-E-L-A-J-L-A-W.com. I'm also on Instagram, jva.law. And then on Twitter, JVA Tax, the, number, the letter N, Law, JVA Tax and Law. I do have a Facebook, but I don't really do much to it because I can't figure out. It's, it's overwhelming to me. Uh, but those are, the best, those are the ones you're going to see me most active on is uh, Twitter, Instagram, and then on the web. I, I have a blog on there. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things I advise my clients is, you know, find those social media apps where you where you like hanging out, but also where your clients hang out. And then when you can find those where both you and your clients hang out, that's really where you should be. And don't worry about the others, you know? So we don't have to master them all to grow our firm and get where we want to go. We can pick and choose, you know, what works for us. So I'm really glad that you're here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was great to talk to you, Davina. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the League in the coming year, including the exclusive million-dollar law firm framework 
that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. Lead is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.